Merry Christmas. Uh, I've got to tell you, if uh, Joseph the drummer was there at the manger, baby Jesus is wide awake right now. <laughs> wide awake. <laughs> hey, we want to thank you for choosing to spend part of your Christmas Eve with us. Um, if it is your first time or your first time in church in a long time, I, just let me tell you this up front. I come from a place of deep empathy and understanding for you because I realize I am between you and dinner, right, on Christmas Eve. And I realize I'm between you and maybe presents for some of you. And so with all that said, let's close in prayer. Merry Christmas, everybody. All right? All the kids are like, best sermon ever. No, I, I come from a place of understanding because when I was a child, this, this night or this service and one other service, Easter, were the two services, I was a pro at getting out of church on Sundays. Like my parents would go and I'd, I'd suddenly have this mysterious fever that came up only on Sunday mornings, okay? It, it just, I don't know what happened. It just, it would always hit and I just couldn't go to church is what I would share with my parents and they, they wouldn't make me go. But this service in Easter wasn't getting out of it. And so here's what God did. He made me a pastor. <laughs> and now I have to be here every single Sunday. So just be careful with that game, okay? Uh, I say I have to be here every Sunday. Honestly, I, I've found myself saying, especially this last year, I get to be here every single Sunday. And if you don't go here, um, what we're about is, is over our doors as you enter the sanctuary. This is a place where we want to see somebody connect with Jesus or connect with people, or connect people with Jesus. And if just one of those things happens on a, on a Sunday, or even during the week with the different things we have going on, that's a win for us. But when it's and, connect with Jesus, and connect with people, and connect people with Jesus, that is what we're about. And so with that in mind, I have one goal for just the next few moments. Actually, I have two goals. Some of you heard this and some of you didn't. The service before this no less than eight seconds after I got done preaching, the fire alarm went off. And so we were going to go into silent night, and it was a not-so-silent night in here. And so uh, if that happens, uh, thanks for visiting, okay? But uh, so that's the first goal. The second goal is to ask every single person in here, in the next few minutes, would you just consider taking a step closer than where you are now, a step closer toward Jesus. Okay, and so for some of you, that might mean if you don't do the church thing on Sundays, I get it. I get it. Years, years as a kid doing that. But would you consider maybe it's one Sunday checking out church sometime? For some of you, it may not be a church thing. It might be a conversation thing, that you have a conversation with maybe the person who brought you, or if you're from out of town, the people you're staying with who brought you. Maybe it's a conversation with them about what all this is about. Or maybe for you, it's a conversation with God. And, and maybe it's for the first time, or maybe it's just never, ever happened before. Uh, or maybe, years ago, you, you were done with Jesus. Been there, done that, tried that, didn't answer, heard nothing but silence, life only got harder. Maybe it's a conversation in which you just say to him, it's me, it's me again. And so, to urge you to take that step, I, I just want to spend a few minutes, and I want to talk to you about three people, three people that were part of that original Christmas story. And they didn't know they were part of the Christmas story at that time. All they knew was that a baby was about to be born, or that a baby had just been born. 
That is all they could have possibly known. But the reason I want to talk to you about those three people is because they are three people, three people that all three had an opportunity to be in the very physical presence of Jesus and to see this baby, and all three of them had to come to the same decision point. Would they make room for Jesus in their lives? And all three of them had three different responses that now centuries later, I look at their responses and I go, oh my goodness, one of those would resonate with every single person in this room. And maybe it's more fair to say that all three of those responses are something that every single person in this room has, is, or will relate to at some point. And so, let me talk to you about the first one. And the first one, when you hear it, some of you, if you know about him, you're going to be like, ugh, that's not me. And he's the villain of the story. His name is King Herod. Now, the word king, I'd put air quotes around because King Herod, he was this incredibly brilliant guy, very gifted. There are, there are things that he did from an engineering perspective and an architectural perspective that still today they're trying to figure out how he did it. I mean, he was absolutely brilliant, but all that brilliance and all that wisdom and all that talent and all that gifting, it gained the attention of the Roman Empire. And the Romans, they looked at Herod and they said, you be king. You be king of this area called Judea. Judea. And really what Herod was, as he, as he got into this role, he found out he was really a puppet king. That he didn't really have any real power. In fact, they just wanted him to manage this area that they didn't really want to keep tabs on. So they basically said, squash any uprising and make sure the people pay the taxes. And so that was part one of Herod's problem. He didn't really, I, I would imagine he didn't really feel like he had all the power he actually wanted. And Herod, his second problem had to do with the first. His ambition was just a fatal flaw. Herod was out for power as soon as he got that throne, as soon as he got it. He set to work protecting it. In fact, it was said about Herod that it was far better to be one of his swine than one of his sons. Because there were a couple sons that he thought wanted his throne and he, he, he did away with them. He did away with a couple of his wives. And with that as the context, with that as the context, you're sitting here going, I don't relate to that. But let me tell you what Matthew, who is a man who wrote about Jesus' life, let me tell you what Matthew had to say about Herod. <clears throat> this is Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, that's wise men, from the east, from this faraway land, these faraway lands in the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And everybody who heard this would have gone, oh, shh, quiet, quiet, because if Herod hears you, if Herod hears you, he's not going to be happy because Herod wants the power around here. They said, we saw his star, and Herod would have gone, well, this king has a star? Yeah, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Oh, he has a star? And people worship him? And you can almost feel as you read this, knowing what you know about Herod, that there's some envy that is likely rising up inside him. And then this next piece. This is the piece we can all relate to. Verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, why, why would they be so disturbed? 
Well, truth be told, Herod had gotten used to this puppet king throne that he had. And no, maybe it wasn't perfect, maybe he didn't have real power, and he didn't really even have the respect of the Jewish people. Because they wanted a king that was like them, and Herod did not fit that bill. He did not fit that description. But as they looked at Herod, they could at least get used to what he was like and what he was about. And so Herod, this throne of his, that really wasn't that big of a throne, he set to work protecting it. What he did is he called together the teachers of the law, and he said, I'm hearing about this newborn king. What are the teachings? What do the writings say about where he was to be born? Because there were prophecies from centuries before about this newborn king. Where is he going to be born? Because I want to find him. And then he said to the wise men, he got them together in secret, and he said, when you discover where he's at, let me know where he is so I can go and worship him. Did Herod want to worship him? No. No, Herod was out to protect Herod and Herod's throne, regardless of how much power he actually had. And as I think about Herod, and then I think about me, and I think about Herod, and I think about us, I can think of some areas in life where I've been quick to just close my hands around and go, that's mine, and it may not be perfect, but I don't need it to be disturbed. I don't want it to be disturbed. And what Herod failed to realize is that all the energy he spent protecting his power and his throne and and these areas of his life that he thought were his, just a few miles down the road, he could have taken all that energy and actually walked a few miles down the road and seen this newborn king. And I don't know what would have happened if he had actually made that visit, but if it's anything like my own story and the stories of countless others I've talked to, When you get a glimpse of that newborn king, you realize he is on the throne. And his throne can give you and can give me far more than than our own puppet king thrones can give us. Can't it? It's like Herod's holding on to a penny. And God is saying, if you'll just let go of that penny, I'll put gold in your hands. I will give you the riches I will give you the, not not material riches, but I will give you maybe something that's more fulfilling than the respect you want, more fulfilling than the real power that you're hoping for, something so much deeper. Herod was unwilling. Herod was completely unwilling to make room for Jesus, so much so that he wouldn't even walk a few miles down the road. Can Can you remember being unwilling? As you look in the mirror right now, Are there some areas where you're just unwilling? I was reminded, it was almost 20 years ago, my wife and I went as leaders on a a trip to California with about 80 or 90 high schoolers here. And so eight days on a bus out to California, and we're like in the middle of Nevada, and we stop at this gas station. And this kid, I remember this high schooler, we had told all the kids, you need about $150 to $200 for food money and spending money, And this kid, we're coming out of this gas station, we get on the bus, and suddenly he's like, oh my gosh, I forgot something. Like, out of my way! And he he runs off the bus back into the gas station. So I followed, because I'm thinking, is this like a medical thing? Did he forget to go to the bathroom? What is it? And I find him standing in the aisle of a gas station. And he's like, I gotta get this. And he's looking at a Sony Discman. 
a Sony Discman, okay? Now, for those of you like age 15 and under, you don't know what this is, okay? So a Discman, let me just explain real quick. It's a CD player, okay? A CD is this thing that's bigger than your phone, that holds, you know, your phone has thousands of songs on it and everything else. A CD, you ready for this? Can hold 10 songs. 10 songs, yeah. And he's looking at this thing, and it's even more absurd now, 20 years later, looking back at it. Because I'm sitting here thinking, you want that? And then I asked him this question. How much money did you bring? This is day one of the trip. $150. And I looked at the price tag of the Discman. $140. Yeah, so I was like, okay, before taxes, you've got 10 bucks left. You're telling me that's going to get you through the rest of this trip? Absolutely, I'll figure it out. I'll collect change from everybody. And I thought, man, as, much, as silly as I think that is, I can point to areas where I would hold on to the Discman. I mean, who would do that? Who would hold on to a Discman at the expense of something far more nourishing, like food? Who would hold on to a puppet king throne when they have access to a throne that can provide so much more? And the answer is you would, and I would, if it was the right throne, if it was the right area of life. We all know what it's like to be unwilling to make room for anything else. That's Herod. Let me tell you about Joseph. Okay, Joseph had, had the very, very awesome opportunity to be, he, he was given the opportunity to be Jesus' earthly dad of God's own son. And Matthew explains Joseph's situation like this. Matthew chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, in this next part we know because it's centuries later and we know how it turned out, but he couldn't possibly know at the moment. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. In other words, this was a God thing. God did this. And verse 19 is one we could all relate to. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. And you can imagine Joseph's hearing this going, really? That's your story? You're going to give me that story? Because he was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So here's what you got to note. Not only is Joseph faithful to the law, but he didn't have the Bible we have. I mean, that's got the law that he was used to in it, but we also have this part of the Bible that says, well, Jesus showed up, and he fulfilled the law on our behalf, the, the law that we couldn't possibly keep on our best day. Joseph didn't have that. He had the scriptures, the law that said, if someone is caught in adultery, they are to be put to death. And it was later modified to say that divorce was okay and that they would be disgraced. And Joseph is looking at his fiance and he's thinking about the law. And he's looking at his fiance, but he's also thinking about his lineage because right before Matthew writes this, he, he writes about all these generations that Joseph came from that had lived according to the law. And he's thinking about his past and he's thinking about all these people and what are they gonna think? And he goes, what do I do? Joseph was unsure. Herod was unwilling. Joseph was unsure. And we get that, don't we? 
We know those times where maybe, you don't, maybe you're not walking around with God's law in mind, but we all have our own personal laws, don't we? Like three strikes and you're out. Or some of us, maybe it's somebody crosses you once, one strike and you're out. That's uh, admittedly me in traffic at times when I get cut off. But we all have these personal laws that if you cross this boundary, you're done. And this is what Joseph is going back and forth with. She's saying this is God's doing, but I'm thinking about God's law. What do you do? What do you do when what God says seems to conflict with what God is doing? What do you do? Herod was unwilling. Joseph was unsure. Do you remember what it was like to be unsure? Can you think of an area right now where you're unsure? I was reminded of this just over a year ago. We've got three kids, two of them in elementary school, and our daughter at the time, she was in second grade. And I listen, I love numbers, okay? So I got asked to grade their math quizzes, their timed math quizzes, okay? Keep in mind, second grade, all right? So these tests come home, and I pull these tests out of this packet, and the very top one, it had like this crusty spot on it. And I looked at it, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's a booger. That's a dried booger. And instantly I'm thinking, this kid's getting marked down, okay? This is disgusting. Go ask for a Kleenex. But the teacher had sent home instructions, okay? If if a kid misses four or less problems, they get a four. It's the highest grade you can get. If they miss five to ten problems, you give them a three. If they miss ten to, these were 80, 80 problems long. If they miss ten to 80 problems, they get a two. So it's quite a, quite a curve there, okay? So I pulled these tests out. First was the booger, okay? The second one is this, and and this is the moment I hit unsure, okay? Take a look. Okay, see three plus six up there? Did you know three plus six is A? (laughs) Now, if, if you study that long enough, you recognize the attempt at a nine, right? But I was sitting there and I was going, what do I do? I mean, I want to be seen as a good grader, I want to get asked to do this again because I like numbers. But what do I do? Do I circle this and, and teach a lesson in how to write the number nine? Okay, let me show you another one. Okay, nine plus eight equals K. You see that? Well, obviously, if, if you're a teacher, you can, you can learn to recognize what they were trying to do. It's a backwards seven. And I'm sitting here thinking, what do I do? And then, I don't, I don't have a picture of it, but one of the next tests, I mean, poor kid, okay? There's, there's 10 rows of eight problems, and he made it through like one and a half rows. And I was just sitting here thinking, come on, buddy, come on. So missed about 68 problems on that. And so I'm sitting here going, oh, I'm just unsure what to do. I finally just gave him all fours. I gave him all fours, and I never got asked to grade tests ever, <laughs> ever again. But it'd be easy to look at Herod and it'd be easy to look at Joseph and go, how could you not make room? How could you consider not making room? Herod, Joseph, let me tell you about one more person. And this person has kind of been written into the story. And it's kind of been implied that this person was part of the story based on something that Luke said. Let me read to you what Luke had to say and then I'll tell you who this is. Luke chapter 2. The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. 
She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And some translations say there was no room for them at the inn, at the place of lodging. And over the years, one of the characters that Luke doesn't specify that has been written into the story, and it would be understandable if this was a place of lodging, is an innkeeper. And it might have been an innkeeper. It might have been they were trying to stay with Joseph's family because they were, there was a census being taken by the Romans and everybody had to go to their hometown where they were from. Could have been that, but regardless, we know there is at least somebody Somebody who had to make the decision. Somebody who had to communicate to them, there's no room. There's no room. Now, for years, I've always pictured the innkeeper, but I've always done this thing. I've always, I've always villainized the innkeeper because I imagine a blizzard outside. I imagine Joseph totally unsure what to do, and I imagine Mary possibly going into labor, and I imagine from behind that door, standing in the shoes of the innkeeper, him saying, no room, and slamming the door. But lately, I've been thinking about that. Lately, I've wondered, what was it like to be the innkeeper? Because if you're an innkeeper, chances are you have an interest in hospitality, right? Chances are you get joy out of making people comfortable and providing a shelter and dwelling. And then on top of that, I was thinking about, some scholars believe there, there was this feast going on called the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would celebrate God dwelling with them. And so on the collective conscience is the idea that God dwelled with us. And they were thinking about the desert from generations before, when God went with them, when God made a dwelling, and when God made shelter and he provided for them. And then I was thinking about an innkeeper. If, if you have rooms available and there's a big event going on in town like a Roman census, you're packed. There's no vacancy. And if you didn't know that the very Son of God was going to need a room to be born, you wouldn't have any reason to think to save a room. There's no doubt he was getting calls. The Wi-Fi's bad. The cell phone service isn't good here. We forgot a razor. Whatever it was, maybe, maybe he wasn't a bad man. Maybe he was just a really busy man. You know that feeling? At all during the month of December? Of course we do. Of course. And I sit there and I think about the innkeeper and I think, what was it like to look at a guy who was so unsure and probably looked so scared and a woman on the verge of labor, if not already in it, and to say, we have no room, but there's a stable, there's a cave around back, and he had to shut the door. I mean, a lot of times, a lot of times, I think about my life and I think, oh God, I didn't know this was you, and if I had, I would have saved the best room for you, but all I have to offer, all I have to offer is a cave, a stable, a humble manger. I wonder if that's the space the innkeeper was in. Because we all know what it's like to be unaware, don't we? Years ago, 
my, my wife and I were moving out of our condo. We decided to rent our condo out, and that meant we had to find a place to stay. And uh, we just weren't finding anything, and, and we had already rented out the condo, and, and so we had to be out of there. And I remember my wife came home one day, and she said, Honey, I found a place for us to stay. I was like, Great, where? And she's like, We have these friends who had a barn on the side of their property. It was like a remodeled barn. It was like somebody walked into an actual barn and just threw up drywall. I was like, really? That's, that's what you're proposing we stay in? Yes, it's going to be fine. At the time, we had just our, our oldest child, Lainey. She was a year and a half old. I was like, so we're going we're gonna to take a one and a half year old and we're going to live in a barn until we find somewhere to live. Yeah. Yeah, and they had, they had put in like a bathroom in there and stuff like that, but I think they forgot insulation around some of the walls because winter hit, and I remember trying to turn on the shower, and nothing was coming out, and I realized, oh my goodness, the pipes might be frozen. We finally realized we had to put a space heater on the wall where the pipes were for like an hour and a half if we wanted to take a shower, and it was just like a standing shower, and so we have a one-and-a-half-year-old. we got to do baths. And so we went and bought a baby pool so that I could take baths with our one-and-a-half-year-old. <laughs> Sorry for that mental image. Merry Christmas. All right. <laughs> but I look back now, and I go, wow, some of the most humble moments of my life, and yet some of the sweetest moments of my life were in that barn. I was totally, totally unaware of what God would do in a space like that. You know what it's like to be unwilling, unsure, unaware? Because that's where they were. Herod was thinking, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Don't disturb. Everything's fine. Joseph was thinking, Joseph was thinking, this is not what I'm used to. And the innkeeper perhaps was thinking, I wish I could give you more. But see, we add something to these stories as we read them. And the reason I tell you about these three is because oftentimes I read these three stories and I think, Herod, how could you not make room? And Joseph, how could you consider not making room? And innkeeper, how could you turn them away? You know what we add to the story? Not just their story, but our own stories. When we recognize unwillingness, and, and a lack of assurance, and, and as we think about whether or not we're aware, we condemn ourselves. We condemn ourselves. And yet, if you were to look at the context around these stories, and if you were to keep reading each of these stories, we don't know how long, but Herod, Herod had more opportunities. Herod had plenty more opportunities before he died to go see this king. And Joseph, just a few verses later, he doesn't know what to do, and God gives him a dream and assures him. In the innkeeper, we don't really know what happened. But as I stand back and look at the innkeeper's story, it's where God began. To Herod, God says, listen, I know, I know that everything's fine, but I can give you something better. To Joseph, he says, I know this isn't what you're used to, but I could use you. And he looks at the innkeeper and he says, I know you can't give me more, but that's all I need. I only need a little bit of room. 
And you look at all that and you realize just how important this verse, there's this verse we all know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. At Christmas, he gave us his son. It was a gift. But you know what's equally important is the verse right after it. John 3, 17. Listen to this. For God did not send his son at Christmas or any other time, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know why that's important? Because if you're unwilling, if you're unsure, if you feel unaware, you need to know that God is undeterred in making room for you. You might be unwilling, unsure, and unaware in making room for him, but Jesus is absolutely undeterred in his making room for you. One story, and I'm done. Just, just two weeks ago, I was talking to a man that I've known for years here in this church. And we were just standing out here in the lobby area, and we were talking, and his kids went by. And, and we were talking about the kids a little bit, and, and he just mentioned all that they had going on. And he stopped, and he paused. And I thought I saw a tear in his eye, and he said, Nathan, can I be honest? I never wanted to be a dad. In fact, when we got the news that we were going to be parents, my wife was crying tears of joy and I was just crying because I didn't want to do this. I had plans I wanted to go about. I had things I wanted to do. And I just didn't want to do it. Throughout the pregnancy, he said he wanted no reminder, no reminder of this pregnancy. So he didn't go to any of the appointments. He wasn't there for any of it. And then he said this, he said, when it came time for that baby to come, when our firstborn was delivered, they put him in my arms, and Nathan, I collapsed. And everything, the hardness softened. And everything that I'd been just storing up and I was so mad about, it faded away. And he doesn't know this, but sometimes I'll see him in our lobby area, and I'll see him looking or interacting with his kids. And you know what? He beams. You can tell in somebody's eyes when they're beaming. And he beams. And he's an incredible father. Can you imagine? To the unwilling, the unsure, the unaware, your heavenly father. You know what he did? He placed a baby in your arms. This Christmas, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, would you make room for that baby? I'm going to invite up the worship team, and they're going to sing a song. And then after that song, assuming there's no fire alarm, <laughs> uh, we have candles. You got candles on the way in. Would you stay and join us to close in silent night? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you're a father, that you looked at us and you looked right past any unwillingness, any lack of assurance, and any, any, anything in us that was unaware. And you said, you know what? I'm undeterred. It doesn't matter. I am going to send the perfect gift, a child, a child. And the message with that gift, write this on our hearts, tonight and in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead. The message with that child is that you made room for us.
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for the gift at Christmas. Amen.